0: And we're in our message series on the life of Jesus again. The past three weeks, we were talking about God as our Heavenly Father. And if you missed that, I encourage you to listen to it. You're going to learn a lot about how God loves you as a Father. We're back in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in chronological order because we want to know this Jesus for ourselves. We don't want to read secondhand books about Him or hear about Him from other people. We want to see Him in His Word for ourselves, what He said. what he did, what he taught. And the last time we were in this message series, we heard Jesus talk about the necessity of having a childlike faith, trusting our heavenly father the way a good earthly father is trusted by his children, having a faith built on a belief in the father's character. And we saw Jesus describe greatness in the kingdom of God as having a childlike faith. This week, we're gonna learn more about the way Jesus loves us, I don't care how old you are, I don't care how young you are, I don't care if you've been a believer your whole life, or if you're just beginning to explore the idea of God, there is nothing better than growing in your understanding of the life-changing truth that Jesus loves you. There's no greater news in the world, there's nothing better you could ever hear than the truth, Jesus loves you, period. No asterisk, see a little comment with a bunch of conditions on the bottom. Jesus loves you, period. So let's jump in. We're in Matthew 18, and we'll begin in verse 11. Jesus says this, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And these types of mission statements straight from the mouth of Jesus are so valuable and precious because since the day Jesus returned to heaven at the end of his earthly ministry, People have been trying to hijack Jesus for their own purposes and causes and remake him and remodel them into a savior of their own liking. But it's so precious to us when Jesus clarifies that first and foremost, he came to the earth to save that which was lost, you and I, by dying on the cross in our place, making a way for us to be saved. Jesus's first coming was not to end climate change or poverty or war or to simply do good works. It wasn't to teach a moral way of living or to cure the problem of pain. Jesus's first coming was to save that which was lost. So write this down. Jesus came to the earth on a rescue mission. He came to the earth on a rescue mission. Why? Because that's what we needed most. We need our sins forgiven more than we need an end to war, more than we need an end to famine, more than we need an end to disease. And today that is still true for anyone who does not belong to Jesus. That man or woman or child needs their sins forgiven more than they need anything else. And I never want to miss the opportunity to point this out. The ground floor of the gospel is acknowledging, admitting, confessing the truth that without Jesus, we are lost. That's the ground floor of the gospel. Go ahead and write that down. The truth is without Jesus, we are lost. You can't get to the second rung of the ladder. You can't get to the next level of the faith without starting on the ground floor, which is the place where you say, I'm lost and I cannot. Save myself and wherever you come from, whatever country you come from, whatever your race is, whatever your socioeconomic background is, we all meet in the same place on the ground floor, which is we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We're hopelessly lost without him. We've accumulated a debt we cannot repay. We have broken God's standard of perfection, which is a violation that can never be repaired. There's no room for arrogance in the family of God. There's no room for thinking we're better than anybody because the starting point of our faith, the ground floor of our faith, is admitting we are hopelessly lost, hopelessly screwed up in a situation we cannot fix. There's no room for arrogance because the door to being saved is the door of humility saying, I cannot save myself. That's the ground floor of the gospel. And every time you and I take communion, we're reminded that it really is true that I once was lost. And knowing that is what makes it so sweet to be able to sing, but now I'm found, I'm found. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now Jesus is going to expand on that opening statement in verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not, underline, leave the ninety-nine? And go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying, underline straying. And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, underline, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And this is worth taking some time to unpack because there's a lot in this little parable, a lot we can be taught about Jesus and the way that he loves us. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, write this down. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. This is huge to understanding this. What Jesus has just said is not a model for evangelism. That's not what this parable is about. This is first and foremost a commentary on the way Jesus loves. This is not even a lesson on how we should live. While there is some application from that angle, more than anything else, Jesus is describing the way he loves us. In John 10, Jesus goes into wonderful detail describing himself as the good shepherd. And when, after his resurrection, he confronts Peter for the first time, a lot of you will recall this, He asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter's response after each time is yes. And Jesus responds by saying, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Who do the sheep belong to? They belong to Jesus. Who is the good shepherd? It's Jesus. It's his flock. And I emphasize that because as you read this text, you need to see yourself in the text, in what Jesus is saying. You need to not miss the amazing way that he loves you. So firstly, this is all about the way Jesus loves. It's about Jesus. It's not a model for evangelism. Secondly, we notice that this sheep belongs to the shepherd, as we just said, but this sheep is not currently among his flock. It is straying. So the sheep belongs with the flock, belongs to Jesus, but is not with the flock right now. It's straying. I'm gonna suggest something to you and then I'm gonna unpack this. This might make some of you nervous. I wanna suggest to you that the straying sheep is someone who is not presently saved but is predestined to be saved. Someone who is not presently saved but is predestined to be saved. And if that seems a little complicated, we're talking about what the Apostle Paul says in the Bible in the book of Romans. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. I believe I put it on your outlines. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So Paul describes the process of salvation this way. God knows who is going to choose him. God knows who is going to choose him out of their own free will. This is where Calvinism goes in one direction and we would go in another. So Calvinism would say, well if God knows what people are going to decide, then it's not really a free will decision. But that's based off a human perspective of time. So from human perspective, we look at time and we say, well the only way you could see the future is to somehow manipulate the future. But it's no problem at all, scientifically or rationally, if the person making that statement, if the person seeing the future exists outside of time. That's no problem at all. So the Lord is able to view all of time simultaneously. He is able to view what each person will do with their free will. Him viewing that in no way affects the person's free will. It's like you or I watching what somebody does through a pair of binoculars, which I hope you don't do. It's pretty sure it's illegal. But if you were doing that, you viewing them doing that has not affected their free will. You're simply observing what they're doing with their free will. Calvinists would say, no, no, no. If he knows, then he's manipulating it. We would say, no, he's a God who exists outside of time. He's not manipulating it in any way. The system of free will, man's sovereignty is still perfectly preserved. So God knows who in their free will is going to choose him. He knows that. And then he predestines those he knows will choose him to ultimately become like his son Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. He knows who's gonna choose him and he predestines them to end up in the family of God. Why is that wonderful? Because that is God saying every single person who would choose Jesus will end up in the family of God. There will be nobody spending eternity in hell because they had the misfortune of simply missing out on an opportunity every single person who would choose Jesus if given the opportunity will be in the presence of God in heaven for eternity. One way or another, that's the glorious truth you can rest in. And to get them to that destiny, Paul says, well, then the Lord calls them. By his Holy Spirit, he calls them to himself. And he calls them, Paul says, so that he can justify them, which means he can forgive their sin, justify, just as if I'd never sinned. And then that destiny is fulfilled when they become glorified. They're ultimately made completely new in the presence of God in eternity. So throughout the Bible as well, this is why I believe we're not talking about people who are just lost. We're talking about the straying sheep being somebody who is ultimately going to choose Jesus, but they have not done so yet. Here's another reason I believe that. Sheep represent believers in the Bible. Read the whole Bible especially the New Testament, all the teachings of Jesus, you will never find people who would not choose him, who are not part of his family described as sheep, ever. We know at the end of time, he divides the sheep from the what? The goats, who are the sheep, they're believers are the goats. They're non-believers. Jesus never describes all people as sheep. He only ever describes sheep as being believers. This is a principle we call expositional constancy. It means when an idiom or a word picture shows up in the Bible, it's usually consistent. And sheep are very consistently representative of believers, especially in the teachings of Jesus. In John 10, as we mentioned earlier, he uses sheep to describe those who belong to him. To stay on track in our study, I just want to read three verses of John 10 to you. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, so get this, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. So you catch the tensing in the verbiage there. Jesus says, I have sheep that are not here yet. That's literally what Jesus is saying. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So when you look at how the Bible talks about sheep, when you look at the words of Jesus, I think it becomes very clear that sheep are referring to Those that are his, and the straying sheep in this story refers to somebody who is predestined to belong to Jesus but does not yet belong to him. They haven't turned to him yet. Thirdly, we need to understand how shepherding works at this time in the Middle East. So shepherds would take care of a flock of sheep, but they would also share land during the day and a place of shelter during the night with other shepherds and other flocks. So a place of shelter in the night might be a cave, it might be a structure, and their sheep would mingle during the day, they would mingle at night, and your first thought might be, well, how do the sheep not get mixed up? I mean, does he paint all of them blue and yellow? What do we do? How would they keep track of whose is whose? And the answer is very simple. The sheep knew the voice of their shepherd, and all the shepherd had to do was call them. That's what Jesus is referring to in John 10 when he says, my sheep hear my voice, And I know them and they follow me. So during the day, the shepherds would share land and their flocks would mix. And one of the benefits was they could watch this big flock from multiple angles. They could protect the flock better. They could also cover each other if someone needed to use the restroom or go into town to get food or something like that. So when Jesus talks about leaving the 99, this is really important. He's not saying that he leaves the 99 in a position of danger. He's not like, screw you sheep, I'm going after the one. That's not what's happening at all here. On the contrary, he's leaving the 99 in the place of safety. Jesus, the good shepherd, would be Jesus, the bad shepherd, if he said, one is missing, so I'm going to take the 99 into the mountains to look for the one. What would happen? She would be falling off cliffs into holes, all, all kinds of bad stuff. He'd find the one and lose 17 in the process. That wouldn't be... A good shepherd. So write this down. Jesus doesn't compromise the safety of the 99 in order to rescue the one. Jesus doesn't compromise the safety of the 99 in order to rescue the one. And here's where I'm going with that thought. If you read this passage and instead of taking it as a commentary on the love of Jesus, if you read this and immediately think, so that's what I need to do. This is a model for evangelism then you're missing a really, really big point that Jesus is making in this parable. This is the big point. Jesus is the one who does the seeking and the saving. Jesus is the one who does the seeking and the saving. Those who are destined to belong to Jesus know his voice, not your voice. And we should never think that we can function as the Holy Spirit. We can't save a single person. Only God can do that. Write this down. I know you're waiting for the counterbalance of that. And this is it. What we are to do is be partners with Jesus as he does the seeking and the saving. We're to be partners with Jesus as he does the seeking and the saving. He is working a plan far, far bigger than any of us could imagine. For each person who is destined to belong to him, the plan is far, far bigger than we could imagine. Jesus is not asking us to come up with the plan. He has the plan. Through the Holy Spirit, He will ask us to participate by showing exceptional kindness or generosity to a specific person. He'll ask us to forgive radically. He'll ask us to strike up a conversation or get to know somebody better. He'll prompt us to share the reason for our joy or something God has done in our lives. He'll tell us to share the gospel at a specific point. He'll tell us to serve somebody. He'll tell us to do all kinds of things, but he's the one with the plan. Jesus is the one seeking and saving. When you realize that, that takes a really big load off your shoulders. You don't need to sit down and say, "I got to get my neighbor saved." So, step one, I'll build a bantering sort of relationship. I'll figure out something he's interested in, find a point of commonality, and then I'll build on that. Then we'll have him over for dinner once. We'll give it two months so that we don't look too desperate. Then we'll have him over for dinner again. Then we'll get it to monthly. And you don't you don't have to come up with this giant strategy. Jesus is the one who has the plan. He's the one who does the seeking and the saving. Our goal is to listen to the Holy Spirit at all times and be obedient to the Holy Spirit at all times. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit at all times. As we pray for people, as we ask the Lord for boldness, as we seek to hear the Holy Spirit, God will use us. He'll invite us into his plan to seek and save the lost. But if you just say, Jesus did that, so I'm going to go into some dangerous territory and look for some lost sheep. Here's what's probably going to happen. You're going to get hurt. You're going to fall off a cliff somewhere. Instead, listen to the Lord. Trust that he has a plan. Ask him what your part is in that plan. And if you do that, he'll keep you safe. The day may come when he does ask you to join him in dangerous territory, looking for lost sheep. But if and when that day comes, if the Lord is the one who has the plan, you can trust that you're strong enough to do it because he will never compromise your spiritual safety. He will never compromise the spiritual safety of one sheep to save another. Everything that's put in his hand, he doesn't lose. That's what he said. Jesus is the one with the plan. Jesus is the one who is seeking and saving. Our job is to rest in that and be ready moment to moment for whatever our part is to play in his mission. Now let's unpack what we see about the incredible way Jesus loves us. Write this down first. We see that the love of Jesus is unconditional. It is unconditional for his sheep. He doesn't say, well, you know what? If that sheep was mine, it wouldn't be straying. It'd be back with me. He doesn't say, stupid sheep, maybe it'll get hurt and learn his lesson. Shouldn't have been wondering where it shouldn't have been going. No, he goes looking for it. He goes calling out to it patiently searching until the sheep realizes the error of his ways, looks around at where he is, realizes he's in danger and says, "I, I need my shepherd. Where are you? And here's the shepherd calling out to him. Listen, whether you are where you should be among the flock of God or whether you're off wandering in the mountains, Jesus loves you. He loves you. There is no connection between your behavior. And his love for you, he just loves you. So why not stray, thinks every teenager when they hear this. Because you'll get hurt. It's the mountains, not the good kind, the creepy, scary kind from Disney movies. You'll be in danger. It doesn't take being a Christian for very long before you realize, man, with the Lord, with the people of God, with my shepherd is where I want to be. It's the safe place, it's the place of rest, it's the place of joy. But all the time, we like to test it and find out, well, what's it like over there? It doesn't take long to realize I'm not happier. I don't have more joy, I don't have more peace, I don't have more fulfillment. There's no point straying, it's not what's good for you. Write this down, then we see that the love of Jesus is individual, it's individual. The good shepherd doesn't say, hmm, one's missing but I have 99. Oh, well, just 1%. The good shepherd knows his sheep individually and he loves them individually. And we have a tendency sometimes to think, you know, the Lord must be busy with people so much more important than me. He's got Christians being persecuted on the other side of the world. He's got powerful evangelists. He's helping people who are sick. And why is he gonna help me when I tell him, I'm just feeling kind of down today? He's like, oh, I'm sorry, your life is so hard. That's not the way the Lord is. He's not limited in his capacity in any way. He doesn't have to put a believer who's dying of cancer on hold. Hang on one minute, I know you're dying of cancer, but listen, she can't figure out what to wear this morning. I gotta go deal with it. This doesn't work that way. He is completely unlimited. He is able to know us all individually, simultaneously, hear every thought we have at the same time. And get this, you need to understand this. Do you know that the Lord never compares you to anyone else? The Lord never says, why can't you be more like him? Why can't you be more like her? Ah! He never does that. In your relationship with the Lord, it's just you and him. And the only thing he compares you to is who he created you to be. And he works tirelessly to move you towards your full potential because he knows what it is because he put it in you. The only person he's comparing you to is the person he created you to be. And he's never condemning, he's always encouraging, saying, listen, I put so much more in you than you think I did. Do you realize that the Lord would have given the law, the prophets, the whole Bible just for you? Do you realize Jesus would have died if it was only you? It was only you. In the discussion among the Trinity before the universe was made, they did not say, well, if there's at least a million, then I'll go die on the cross. if it was just you, he still would have done it because he loves you individually. Individually, as you are, he knows you individually. And when we talk about being, uh, when we talk about the Lord being intimately acquainted with us on an individual level, there's nothing that describes that better than Psalm 139. And if you've heard this before, then just clear your mind and hear it again because this should never cease to amaze you. And if you've never heard this, then realize this is how God loves you as an individual. Psalm 139 begins this way. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand, and when I awake, I'm still with you. Jesus knows you better than any person will. He knows you better than you know yourself. And with all that knowledge, knowing the best about you, knowing the worst about you, knowing what you think in the deepest parts of you, knowing all that, he loves you. And he laid down his life for you. Nothing you will ever do is a surprise to the Lord. He knew it all. And knowing it all, he went to the cross for you because he loves you individually. There's no greater truth I have to share with you today than Jesus loves you. He loves you. And then we observe that the love of Jesus, write this down, is emotional. The love of Jesus is emotional. Love is not an emotion, it's a choice, but the choice of love produces emotion. When the good shepherd finds the straying sheep, what is his response? Does he strike him with his staff? Does he lecture him? Does he say, I've been needing a new sheepskin coat? No, we're told that the shepherd, what? He rejoices. He rejoices when he finds the straying sheep. And I encourage you to sear that into your memory because when we stray, Satan loves to attack us with guilt and shame. He loves to tell us, hey, if you return to the Lord, you know what you're gonna find? An angry God. Or even worse, a disappointed God going, really, again? But Jesus himself says, listen, let me tell you what you're gonna find when you come back to me. You're gonna find me rejoicing. You're gonna find me picking you up, taking you in my arms, bringing you back to the flock. That's the God you're going to find. Don't ever forget that. Anything else, any other thought is a lie from Satan. Jesus says, man, I'm just glad you're back. Jesus loves you. He loves you. Before we change passages, I just wanted to deal with verse 14 again. Verse 14, I'm going to flip back in my notes, says... Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's worth taking an aside to talk about this because the whole story that Jesus has just shared is coming on the tail end of the interaction we learned about last time, which is when he's brought a child in front of the disciples to talk about greatness. So when Jesus says this, the question is, is he talking about the child Or is he talking about the sheep? And I encourage you as I share what I'm about to do to believe nothing that I say and pursue it for yourself in the word of God. Nothing would make me happier than for you to go find your own answer. But I wanna share with you what I believe we're talking about here. He's been talking about sheep and I don't believe Jesus is continuing to talk about sheep. He doesn't call them little lambs or little sheep. He calls them little ones. And earlier when he was talking about children, he refers to them in a similar way. So Jesus shares this desire. He says, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And when he says these, it's multiple, and he's most likely gesturing to the children who are still around him. So that leaves you with a couple of issues depending on your view. When he says it's the will of God that none of these should perish, is this the will of God like it's destined to happen and all the children who are there just happen to be children who are going to choose Jesus as Messiah? It's possible It seems unlikely. Or is this a reference to the will of God in the sense that he desires it, but it may not come to be? And this can be a little bit confusing because people think, well, well, if this is the will of God, then it has to happen because it's the will of God, right? But this is not really as complicated a concept as you might think because we understand this concept all the time. When we go to the gym to start working out after doing nothing and neglecting ourselves for years, Is it our desire that our body would hurt the next day? No, of course it's not. We know that's an inevitability, but we put up with that because we desire something greater to not die at 40 from a heart attack. So we clearly understand in a million different ways in our lives the concept of knowing that something is going to happen that we do not desire because we desire something greater than that. And I want you to keep that logic in mind. When you talk about the will of God, you have to go almost all the way back to, I believe, why God made us. Whatever your view is on predestination and free will and things like this, you have to begin with this question, why did the Lord make us? And here's the angle I'm coming from. He already had the angels. He already had the angels. So they see him. They seemingly have a measure of free will. Lucifer chose to rebel, so did a third of the angels, but you can argue that was predestined if you want. But even if they don't have free will, even if they're predestined, if your view is that every single man and woman is completely predestined with no free will of their own, you have to answer the question, then why make us? He already has the angels. The only thing making us does is cause Jesus to have to come to the earth to die for people who were predestined to choose him anyway. Anyway. So if you hold to the view of emphatic predestination with no free will, you don't have a reason for why God made us other than clumsily saying, well, it's for his glory in some way we can't fully understand. He already has the angels. I think a much more likely explanation than what the Bible refers to is this. Imagine that you are given a spouse and you're told this spouse has no free will. They will love you no matter what you do. Punch them in the face, they'll still love you. It's got nothing to do with how you treat them. Would you feel like that's a meaningful relationship with your spouse? You'd be like, no, they're not choosing. So you say, okay, okay, I know what you mean. Well, let's back it up a little bit. I'll give them free will. They can choose to love you or not, but you will be the only person who can give them food and water. Would you say, yeah, it's a relationship I want? You'd say, well, no, because they, they still don't really have free will. So what happens is you begin to back up further and further and further from the robotic love till you got to the point where you said, yes, this is free will choice. They will choose to love me or not. They're not obligated to do so. It's their choice, and the choice is what makes the love meaningful. So the Lord lacks nothing. He lacks nothing, but he desires to share himself and his goodness. So he creates something that does not presently exist, beings with free will. And what the Lord does is he places us just the right distance from him, far enough away from him to be able to have free will. Because if we saw God in his full glory, what would happen? What's going to happen at the end of time? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There's no choice. It says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There's no choice there. So he places us far enough from him to have true free will, yet close enough to him to have enough revelation of him to choose him. He creates this system of free will. He gives man sovereignty. It's staggering, knowing that the cost of that will be the life of Jesus. Now, he knows, if I do this, the things that man will do with his free will will be sometimes hideous. They will be detestable and wicked and perverse in the most awful ways. But there is something greater going on. At the end of all this, brothers and sisters of Jesus, a family of God who chose to love him of their own free will. And the Lord says, even though man will do some terrible things with his free will, this is worth it. And that's a hard truth to swallow. But when Jesus says, it's the will of my Father that none of these little ones should perish, What he's saying is, I don't want anybody to not choose me. I don't want anybody to be sent to hell. I don't want anybody to miss out on eternity with me and my Father and the Holy Spirit. I don't want that. But even more than that, I want people who will choose to love my Father. Do you understand how both can be true? He can desire that none will perish and yet say there's something even greater going on though. I want people to choose, and he's going to honor the free will of man. So when Jesus is teaching this to his disciples, everything he's just shared is shattering their legalistic view of God. You've got to remember how legalistically they viewed God. They didn't view him as a a loving, compassionate God. And we see this when the disciples encounter a blind man and say something like, who sinned? Why is he blind? Him or his parents? There's nothing compassionate in that anywhere, where when people mess with Jesus and they say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and kill them all right now? They believe in a God who's just, but a God who is wrathful, who is not compassionate. You screw up too bad, you're done. You cannot be saved. And Jesus is giving them this parable where he says, you know, you'd go look for a sheep if you lost one. You don't think God has a greater love for his children than that? He's trying to blow up the way that they view god so jesus doesn't want anybody to go to hell but man's sovereignty man's free will is even more important it's even more meaningful and he will not compromise that even though man will do awful things with that i really believe that's how this system of predestination and free will works you can wrestle with it in the scriptures and come to your own conclusions And at this time, we're going to shift to Mark chapter 9. If you would just turn there. Mark chapter 9, verse 49. We're just going to look at a couple of verses. Because at this point in the life of Jesus, Mark records two sentences that Jesus shares that none of the other gospels do. And I want to be up front with you that the meaning of these couple of verses is highly debated. If you open five commentaries, you'll find five different explanations on this. That's what happened to me when I was studying this. We're going to do our best to make sense of it. But again, you can study it on your own and come to your own conclusions. In Mark 9.49, Jesus says this, "...for everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt." What it seems like Jesus is telling his disciples is that all believers are going to go through trials. All believers are going to go through fires in life. This is consistent with what Jesus says throughout his ministry. In this life, you will have trouble. And then he says, but every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. So my view would be that Jesus is telling his disciples, if you'll view these trials the way the Bible tells you to, and the Bible says, consider all your trials, joy, because they purify you, they perfect your faith, they build perseverance. View yourself as a living sacrifice. So if you view these trials the way the Bible says to you and view yourself as a living sacrifice, then your trials will affect those around you like salt. In other words, people will see how the disciples of Jesus walk through trials and difficulties and it'll be a testimony of their faith. It'll be like salt flavoring the world around them. And the link between salt and fire seems to be that in the Old Testament sacrifices, they're both present. When a sacrifice was made in the Old Testament, it would be consumed by fire, but before it went into the fires, one of the first steps, they would season it with salt because salt preserves, it purifies, it stops bad smells. So there's this link in Old Testament sacrifices there. In verse 50, Jesus says, salt is good. Salt was an essential item in first century Israel. With no refrigeration and a hot climate, it was the only way to preserve food, especially meat. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? You see, all the way back in Matthew 5, Jesus identified believers with salt when he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? The idea is that salt that loses its flavor is its not really good for anything. Unlike the salt of our day, the salt then could actually be broken down uh, and infected with impurities that would cause it to lose its flavor. When Jesus talks about believers being salt, he's talking about the reality that just as salt changes the flavor of whatever you add it to, the presence of believers in any situation or environment should change that environment or situation in some way. Things should be different because a believer is present just because they're there because the holy spirit is in them the holy spirit is now there and jesus latches on to that idea when he ends by asking the heavy question we should regularly ask ourselves if the salt loses its flavor then what good is it jesus is asking us if your presence in your neighborhood in your school your workplace changes nothing if it doesn't affect a single person in any way then what's the point Why don't I just go to heaven right now? I know some of you are like, that sounds great. Just don't go jump off a bridge or anything. That's not where I'm going with this. It's a heavy question, and it's the kind of question we don't like because it can be very, very convicting. But often we're too hard on ourselves when it comes to this question. We can look at ourselves and think, oh, man, there's not a revival on my street yet. God must be so disappointed. Or my office or my school hasn't seen a a mighty move of God yet. I'm such a failure. Listen, the Lord has given all of us a sphere of influence, a group of people whose lives we can touch. Don't worry if it's a big impact or a small impact. Just begin to recognize that there are people in your life, whoever you are, and that you have the potential to touch their lives in some way. So let me explain. If you have a family, if you have relatives, you have a sphere of influence. If you have kids, you have a big sphere of influence. If you have a spouse, you have a sphere of influence. If you have neighbors you have a sphere of influence. If you have coworkers, if you have classmates, you have a sphere of influence. And we can get bogged down with questions like, can I affect all of my coworkers? Or can I affect all of my classmates? But that's not what the Lord asked you or I to do. Write this down. What the Lord asked us to do is stay connected to him, obedient to his word and his spirit, and trust that he is the one with the plan to seek and save. He asks us to stay connected to him, obedient to his word and his spirit, and trust that he is the one with the plan to seek and to save. And Satan will try to get you to give up by making the task seem too overwhelming. But Jesus isn't asking you to change the world. He's asking you to stay connected to him, obedient to his word and his spirit, and trust that he is the one with the plan to seek and to save. The men who did that, the disciples of the early church, were accused of, of turning the world upside down. They didn't set out with a plan to conquer the world for the gospel. They just walked closely with Jesus. They obeyed his word. They listened to his Holy Spirit. They obeyed his Holy Spirit. And it happened. It just happened. When he asks us to be salt in the world, he's just saying, I want you to live lives connected to me and available to me. That's it. This idea is beautifully laid out by Jesus in John 15 where he describes himself as the true vine. And Jesus says this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. The key is to be connected to Jesus, to walk closely with Jesus. And then he promises if you do that, Your life will be fruitful. No 10 step plan, just walking closely with Jesus. You'll be salt in the world if you walk closely with Jesus and if you think you can't make a difference in the world, it's as simple as walking closely with Jesus, praying for the lost and asking the Lord to use you and then obeying when the Holy Spirit asks you to do something. If you'll do those things, you'll be salt and light in the world and Jesus will use you as he seeks and saves the lost. And then Jesus ends verse 50 by saying, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. And I wanna suggest to you that these two things are connected. Having salt in yourself, the the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and living at peace with other believers. Jesus' simple instruction is stay zealous Keep that passion, keep that fire for the Lord burning. Keep walking closely with Jesus. And one of the results is gonna be peace with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I feel I would be remiss if I didn't point this out that sometimes you can have churches where the reputation is, man, God is really, really moving. The Lord's doing something. There's a fresh move of the Spirit. But there is just endless drama there. There's backbiting and gossip and power maneuvers happening behind the scenes. Jesus says, listen, where my spirit is, one of the fruits is gonna be peace among the brethren. That's gonna be one of the hallmarks of the real presence of God. Believers honoring one another, putting each other before themselves, serving one another out of love. Have salt in yourselves and peace with one another. In conclusion, I'd say this. Don't buy into the lie that you can't make a difference for Jesus in the world. You have a sphere of influence that the Lord has divinely placed you in. He's not asking you to come up with a strategy or a plan. He's saying, hey, hey, listen, stay connected to me. I'm the vine. You can't do anything without me. Abide in me, stay connected to me, and your life will be fruitful. When the Holy Spirit asks you to do something, just do it. I was so blessed this week. I went to hear Wes speak for the first time to a group of students on Friday night, and he shared his testimony. He did a great job. And it was so neat hearing this story. If you don't know Wes's story, you should ask him to tell it to you. He, he lost his dad as a young teenager. And the Lord put five to seven godly men who poured into his life. He was meeting with about five different guys once a week who loved the Lord and were just pouring into him nonstop. That never happened Because the five of those guys, I'm one of them, got together and said, listen, this kid just lost his dad. We gotta rally around him and be father figures. You know that never happened. What happened was individually, each of us, the Lord just said, hey, just give him some time. Let him come help you set up the stage. Take him out of school early to come help you at the church, which I did. And through all of that, God wove this master plan And that blesses me because it reminds me, Jesus is the one doing the seeking and the saving. He's the one doing it. If you'll be obedient to his Holy Spirit, you will find yourself participating in his plan for many different people. Some of them you won't even know till you get to heaven. I can't wait to get to heaven. And we all just get to watch as God pulls back the curtain and he says, let me show you what my plan was for this person. And we will be in awe of these moments in our lives that we thought were not important that we will realize changed the entire trajectory of our lives because God had a plan. We will be astounded the lives that we impacted just because we were walking closely with Jesus and obeying the Holy Spirit. And we had no idea what the Lord is asking you to do is to walk closely with him. Be obedient to his spirit. And trust that if you do that, you'll get to participate in his plan to seek and save the lost. Take the pressure off. Love Jesus. Listen to his spirit. And if you desire to be used by him, you will. It's that simple. And if you need a reason to worship this morning, it's the same reason you always have. The best reason there is. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, he loves you unconditionally. He loves you individually, and he loves you emotionally. That's worth thanking him for. You were once lost, but now you're found. Because he loves you, because he left the 99 to go after you. And when he found you, he wasn't mad or angry, picked you up in his arms, and he rejoiced. And if you're straying this morning, if that's who you are in this story this morning, sear it into your mind that he loves you. You are not gonna encounter an angry or a wrathful God when you come back to him. You're gonna find a loving shepherd who will pick you up in his arms and say, I am so glad that you're back where you need to be. Jesus promised that. You can take his words to the bank. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are not asking us to come up with a strategy to save the world. You're the one who came up with the strategy. And you are the one who has a plan for everyone who will choose you. Lord, you didn't intend this to be a burden for us, but you intended it to be a joy to participate in your work around the world bringing people into your family. So first, Lord, we freely confess, God, we can do nothing without you. As the prophet said, God, our our good works are like filthy rags on their own strength, on their own merit. But if we're abiding in you, if we're connected to you, if we're walking closely with you, hey, fruit is just gonna happen in our lives. You're gonna use us to make a difference So God, before we even ask to be used, we ask that you would help us to just abide in you, to stay connected to you, to walk closely with you, to realize that doing anything outside of that is meaningless, it's pointless, and it's hopeless. Would you help us to live a connected life to you, Lord? And God, would you give us ears to hear the voice of your spirit as you speak to us? Give us such a desperation for the loss, Lord, that we would be quick to respond, even if it means embarrassment or risk. Lord, help us to hear your spirit, God. If we have turned a deaf ear to you out of fear so many times that we can hardly hear you anymore, God, would you give us fresh ears to hear? Lord, we repent of that and we want to start over. We want to be used by you, Jesus no matter what the cost. And we thank you for the great truth today, Lord, that you love us. You love us. You left the 99 to come after us. You love us unconditionally. You love us individually, and you love us emotionally. As David said, God, such love, such thought is too lofty for us. It's too high for us to even wrap our heads around, but God, we're so thankful for it. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you love us. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing. Go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus and we would love you to be a part of it.